in here. Oh, I know. Oh, you're not almost guy here. So we got a workout unit. So it was it was nasty. And it was again now in the middle of the day. Hope so. Okay, and if there's more not, we'll be sure to get the memo, right? Yes. Okay. Uh, 
Sunday School services also. Uh, do we have any updates on some of our members who haven't been here in a while? Anybody have anything on Tom Roth? Has anyone talked to him or seen him? Well, he's hunkered down still. And Ken, you told me earlier this morning that Dallas is feeling a little bit rough. Is that better? Oh, okay. <laughs> My apologies. Uh, Ken, you said something about uh, Della's just feeling kind of rough and beat up with all this uh, issues yeah. that she's got. Does she have any appointments coming up to, to see what else can be done, or is it just what it is? prayer a little more uh, fervently, correct? Okay. Anyone else have any uh, prayer requests, uh, concerns, uh, praises perhaps that uh, we can uh, begin our service with? Terry? We will take care of that. And okay. So after service, we shall uh, be reminded Okay. All right, if there's nothing else, then our scripture for meditation this morning is taken from the book of Psalms, 72. And that will be 1 through 17. And that will be page 908 in your pew Bibles.
you stand with us as we begin our service with opening prayer? Dan, may I prevail upon you to lead us? You take your red hymnal, the Trinity, and turn to number 188, 
for this one this morning? I was listening to a podcast this week um, from a woman that wrote a book called Tears and Toppings about <coughs> these trials and and she has a really good grasp of the gospel and how Christ is <coughs>
Our scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of Luke, chapter 13, verses 1 through 8. That'll be page 1619 in your pew Bible. And when you come to that, please stand with us. Luke 13, verses 1 through 8. Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. For those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And he went out to look for fruit on it, but it did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now, I have been coming to look for fruit on this tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. Father in heaven, we pray that you would add your blessing to this holy and inspired word and nourish our heart and our mind as well. Be with us this hour. In the name of Christ, amen. Will you take your Trinity hymnal again and turn to number 498, 498, excuse me, in the red Trinity.
That's pretty good. Our text of scripture this morning is Luke 13, the first eight verses. <clears throat> Last Lord's Day, we studied the uh, story of the rich fool. The request from the crowd was directed to Jesus, which was absolutely irrelevant to the teaching Jesus had been doing. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. It's like the guy wasn't even listening to what Jesus was teaching. Well, in response, Jesus declined to be an arbiter in such matters. That wasn't his mission from God. But he went on to warn, be on guard against greed for a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Which was right to the point of this man's question. Then he proceeded to tell the parable of the rich fool to illustrate his warning on greed. The ground of a rich land baron produced a bumper crop and he had nowhere to store the surplus. So instead of distributing this excess with which God had blessed him to the poor and the needy, he decided to tear down his little barns and build bigger barns so he could, in his words, take it easy for the rest of his life. So he planned to party away the rest of his days in complete abandon. But, the rest of his life was cut short when God required his soul of him that very night. And his goods, the ones that he had, went to others. We learn that greed makes people do strange things. It dries up their heart of mercy, their heart of compassion. It causes them to want more when they don't need more. Greed leads to idolatry of things over God. And we learn that our lives are in the control of Almighty God, not our desires. Now today's lesson on the gospel Jesus preached deals with a strange story about a fig tree and its final end. It's a lesson on repentance and the judgment of those who refuse to bring forth fruit unto God's glory. So let us come as we talk about this fig tree. Our Lord, we pray and thank you for the uh, completeness of your word. You're so practical. I could just see you walking through the countryside and getting a glimpse of this tree stood out among the whole grape orchard seemed out of place. 
but you used it to bring forth some very, very important lessons spiritually. I pray that you'll help us and be with us this day as we look into your word and we thank you for your word. You don't leave us to our own devices. You tell us what your will is for us and call us, therefore, to obedience. Bless the truth of your word. Save whom you will. In Jesus' name, amen. In this text, we see the news item of the day. We observe in Luke 12, verse 1, that Jesus was ministering to a crowd of thousands upon thousands of people. We don't normally think of, you know, we think of, well, maybe a couple hundred people, but thousands of thousands. The text says it. And the question which prompted Jesus to tell the story of the rich fool was asked by someone in that crowd. Near as I can figure out, this second exchange between Jesus and the people is at the time of the same gathering. Chapter 12, verse 54, mentions the crowd again. And our text tells us that some present at that time told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with the sacrifices, which means he killed them. Now this was a news item of the day. But we only have it recorded in the scriptures, and it's a scanty record at best. Obviously at some point in time, under Pilate's rule, a number of Galileans came to make sacrifices at the temple of Jerusalem. You remember that Jesus was a Galilean. He was from that problem. Galilee's north of Judea. Jerusalem is in Judea. North of the province of Judea is Galilee. So he was from that area. Obviously at some point in time, under Pilate's rule, a number of Galileans came to make sacrifices at the temple of Jerusalem. And while they were worshiping, Pilate sent his soldiers and cut them down there and then within the holy temple site. Wow. We're not told when Pilate did this. We are not told why he did it. We are not told what the Galileans had done to deserve such a sudden and bloody execution. So there's a lot we don't know. All we know is that it happened and that Pilate was fully capable of wielding his power in this way. I mean, think about it. Will not Jesus himself come under the tribunal of this same Pilate and be beaten with rods, have his beard plucked out, have a crown of thorns crushed into his skull, and eventually led to his execution by crucifixion under Pilate's orders. Same guy. Now the important thing about this news item, which some people 
related to Jesus is that the people thought that these Galileans who had been executed by Pilate must have been great sinners against God. It's the way they thought. They believed that God had paid them back for their wicked lifestyle, whatever that lifestyle might have been. It's not uncommon in Jewish thought of Jesus' day for the people of Israel to associate severe disaster or catastrophic injuries to the judgment of God on such people for their sin. Well, they're just, you know, they're getting what they do. Eliphaz, one of Job's friends, suggested to Job this reason for his suffering. Let me read it to you. Eliphaz says to Job, Consider now, I mean, who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? Job 4, verse 7. You get the strong implication there to Job? You know, you're coming across as Mr. Innocent. And yet you're undergoing all this trial. Where in life do we ever see the innocent being punished by God like you're going through? You must have done something wicked. But God said that Job was righteous. Bildad, the other friend, didn't say anything much better. He told Job, Surely God does not reject a blameless man or strengthen the hands of evildoers. Chapter 8, verse 20. So these friends, and I kind of put that in quotes, these friends of Job are telling him that the reason he lost all of his children, his livestock and wealth, and now sits in an ash heap covered with sore boils is because he must not be an innocent and upright as he lets on. God is simply punishing him for his hypocrisy. Wow. In the New Testament, Jesus' own disciples asked Jesus, about the blind man in John 9. And this is what they asked. Who sinned? This man or his parents. That he was born blind. John 9 verse 2. And Jesus replied. Must have been a shock to them. He replied. Neither. Neither he. Nor his parents. But these verses demonstrate that the mindset of the people was this. If tragedy strikes, you can be sure that that person who is hurt has committed some great sin against God, and so God is punishing him or her. This was the case of these people who told Jesus about this news item. And we know this because of Jesus' response which was this Jesus said to this group of people do you think 
that these Galileans, who were slaughtered by Pilate, he's referring to them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no! But unless you repent, you too will also perish. Verse 2. So Jesus is challenging their blind spot concerning their own condition before God. Well, he does more. He presses the issue by telling his own account of another news item. He goes on to say, verse 4, of those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no! But unless you repent, you will all perish, verse 4. The Tower of Siloam was built inside the southern portion of Jerusalem's wall. It was located near the Pool of Siloam, to which Jesus bid the blind man in John 9 to go wash away the clay that Jesus had placed on his eyes. These towers, built upon the walls of the cities, were for defensive purposes. An aqueduct built by King Hezediah, Hezediah wormed its way to the spring Gihon outside the city wall. And then this spring fed the Pool of Siloam and the Tower of Siloam guarded that water supply to the city. Naturally, the water site would be a place of considerable activity in Jerusalem. People coming and going all day long to retrieve water. One such day, a weakness in the tower gave way and 18 people were crushed to death by the falling stones. So the slaughter of the Galileans by Pilate, that was intentional. The death of the people upon whom the Tower of Siloam fell was accidental. The Galileans were country folk cut down in the midst of their worship of God. The city folk died in the midst of their daily pursuit of retrieving water for their household. They all died the day the newspapers reported the stories. But according to Jesus' teaching here, none of them died the way they did because of being especially wicked sinners. That's not the message we are to learn from these news stories. Rather, the message is this. Perishing is the lot of every sinner who does not repent of his or her sin, and perishing will come to all regardless of accidental death or intentional homicide. It's going to come your way. If you don't repent, and I don't repent, it makes a little difference how we die, because when we die, we will perish in our sin. So what I'm saying, what I think is 
what Jesus is saying. Repentance is essential to salvation. What is repentance? Well, the Greek word, metanoeo, means to change for the better, to make amends for one's past sins. It is a word which expresses a directional change in thought, hence to change one's mind. So God calls upon us in repentance to change our mind about our sin and our relationship to him. The fact that this is a change of mind means that we are responsible for the way we think. If we think of sin lightly, care little how it ruins our lives, how it separates us from the holy God of the universe, who is our creator, we will perish and we will die. Perishing is done beyond the grave in the world of torment to come, which is endless in its torture and relentless in its agony. Where did I come up with that? From the scriptures where God describes it. But if we think of sin through God's thoughts revealed in the Bible, if we see sin as a killer of all that is righteous and good within us, if we think of it as our enemy and decide to renounce it and turn from it, running to God through Christ for forgiveness, then there will be no perishing for us to experience. Romans 5, verse 1, the Apostle Paul puts it this way. Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, the author of peace. We stand on the merit of his cross work, him dying for us in place of us paying for our sins did you ever think that your thought life was that important educators tell us that they cannot teach children anything unless in their minds they agree to be taught that makes sense but it is a humbling realization to anyone who has ever had a burning desire to convey truth to another only to find out that that person you're trying to teach couldn't care less. But here before us is the master teacher. He is relevant. He knows the news accounts of the day. He is with it in terms of current events. Beyond that, he knows men's hearts. Jesus looks inside a man's thoughts as easily as we look into a mirror. But even with all of this insight, an insight which enables him to put his finger on the thinking of these people in the crowd who told him this news story about Pilate's slaughter of the Galileans, will you notice 
that in the final analysis, Jesus put the responsibility for the reception of his teaching squarely where it should be. He holds his audience responsible. He says, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Gulp. Boy, that was a hard one to swallow. Wait a minute, Jesus. Are you equating us with these Galileans that were slaughtered? The Lord does not give five reasons as to why his teaching about their soul should be believed. He does not try to convince them through logic and argument of the error of their thinking. He simply tells them that they are wrong if they think that they are in a better position before God than the Galileans whom Pilate killed. And there is, his, there is finality in his tone. He says, I tell you, no! The crowd may reason, <laughs> who does this guy think he is? Why should we believe anything he has to say? Indeed, Jesus leaves it with them to believe or disbelieve, to repent as he has warned them to do, or to continue on thinking that all is well with their soul when it's not. The choice to accept his teaching or to reject it is theirs. In either case, what Jesus has taught is the truth, and having discharged his responsibility, Jesus' hearers are left with their responsibility. Which brings up two important applications at this point. Number one, whenever a preacher of the gospel or a teacher or a counselor who uses the Bible gives out the truth of the word of God on the subjects contained in the Bible, which covers everything, marriage, divorce, sexuality, modesty, sobriety, idolatry, greed, selfishness, whatever, it's in the book. The obligation for that teaching for a proper response shifts from the speaker to the listener. True, the speaker had better be teaching the truth of the Bible. He or she must handle the word of God accurately, but assuming that to be the case, God holds you responsible for what you think about what you've heard. Hmm. If you think lightly of the subject, if you dismiss the message because, oh, it's uncomfortable or it's too indicting, then you're trading eternal peace for a bit of temporal calm. And if you do that, Jesus says, you will perish for thinking that way. And when you are in a state of perishing, which in hell lasts for eternity, the remembrance of your foolish choices will haunt you there. 
So you see, hell is not a place of unconsciousness or even of amnesia. Oh, I can't remember. Now you will remember all of your wrong responses to the call of the gospel. And they will haunt you. Now consider Jesus' story of the rich man and a beggar named Lazarus. The rich man ate sumptuously while Lazarus gathered all the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. Anything he could get. But in the course of time, both of these men died. The rich man died. Lazarus, the poor man, died. Lazarus went to Abraham's resting place. Abraham is the father of the faithful. And so it's a reference to the fact that he went to be with those that are righteous. The rich man was buried in hell. And from hell he cried to Abraham, I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Luke 16, verse 27. So you see, he remembers. He remembers. He knows he has five living brothers. He remembers his father's house. And he doesn't want his family to come to the same place of torment. He is conscious of his past. Abraham never sent Lazarus on that mission. But instead gave this response. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, that is, the scriptures, as they were taught by Moses and the prophets, if they do not listen, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Luke 16, verse 31. Do we know someone who rose from the dead? Has that convinced you of his sovereignty, his superiority, the fact that he is king of kings and lord of lords, that he controls not only life, but death itself? Not only the present, but the future. Abraham was right. They won't believe the scriptures. They won't believe even if a man rises from the dead. Second application is for you who are teaching and preaching and witnessing and counseling others with the word of God. God only requires you a faithful, accurate, passionate proclamation of the gospel to sinners. And having done that, your responsibility ends. Why do I say that? Well, there are too many of God's people who castigate their soul day in, day out, because they cannot seem to get through to someone with the gospel. 
Sunday school teachers lie awake at night thinking of ways to teach the kids in their class to break through the barriers of rejection and indifference. Well, maybe I, maybe if I tried more visual aids. Maybe if I planned a monthly party at my house where they could hear another Bible story. Maybe I'll use videos or flannel graphs or audio tapes and stories for the teens. And when nothing works, they wonder about their competence as teachers and they worry about the eternal destiny of their hearers because they love them. Well, if that's you this morning, listen now to Paul's farewell to the church of Ephesus when he sailed from Ephesus to Jerusalem. And it was going to be a final thing. He wasn't going to make it back to Ephesus. Here's his goodbye speech. I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. The task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Therefore I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. And now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace. Acts 20, verse 24 and following. What's he saying? Let me paraphrase it for you. He is saying this. For three years I have faithfully testified to you about the gospel of grace. I haven't held anything back. I taught you the whole will of God as found in the scriptures. My preaching, preaching wasn't simply a matter of duty. It wasn't simply a matter of mechanical lecturing. No, I wept over you and I wept with you. I am therefore innocent of your blood. And the only thing I can do now is commit you to God and to the word of his grace. You're not going to see me again. I'm sailing off to Jerusalem. It's got to fulfill the next log in his journey with God. So in a real sense, Paul had done all that he could do for these people's souls. He taught them faithfully, day in, day out. For three years, he taught them accurately those things found in the word of God. He taught them passionately, loving them with every sermon he preached and weeping over those who remained indifferent and aloof. He could do no more. God expected no more. Likewise, you who are faithful to your calling, you've done what you could. You did it with pure motives and loving hearts. And in those whom you've taught and prayed over and wept over are yet in their sin, you are innocent of their blood. 
like the listeners in this crowd before Jesus, their guilt is their own, not yours. It is at this juncture that Jesus tells the story of the fig tree, verse 6 and following. A vineyard owner did a rare thing. In the midst of his vineyard, he planted a fig tree. What? A fig tree in a vineyard of grapes. This tree, unlike the grapes he grew for commercial purposes, was his private fruit tree. He planted this tree because he liked figs. Duh. Every year at harvest time, this man would hike out through the rows and rows of grapevines to his fig tree in anticipation that he would be able to pick some delicious figs for himself and his family. He did this for three years, and every year he got the same result. Nothing. Zero. No figs. Now the tree was well developed. By this time its branches were mature. The tree should be producing an adequate crop of fruit. But there wasn't even a few puny half developed figs. Just branches and leaves. Oh boy, that did it. He called his vineyard keeper and he told him, Cut it down! Why should it use up the soil? Verse 7. Now it's a valid argument. Think about it. The ground all around the fig tree had grapevines planted in it. The vines were producing grapes on a regular basis. The barren fig tree was occupying space which could be better be used to grow grapes. But, but, before the vineyard keeper consented to cut the tree down, he proposed an experiment. Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year. I'll, I'll dig around it. I'll fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. And the vineyard keeper agreed. Well, what does all of this mean? Jesus has just told his audience that they were guilty of sin for which they must repent or perish. Verse 3, verse 5. Repentance worthy of the name will mean that one must produce fruit in keeping with repentance. To use the baptized words in Matthew 3 verse 8 that means more than a show of life like this fig tree which gave every appearance of being a healthy tree but it had no figs what's a fig tree with no figs it's a phony it's like the flowering cherry tree I had on my Beth Drive property a cherry tree 
but no cherries ever. If the owner had wanted a show of life without the fruit, he could have planted a shade tree. God is not fooled by our ability to mimic the Christian life. Ephesians 2 verse 10, the apostle says, We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. So the fruit which demonstrates true repentance from sin is this. It is these godly traits and habits of the Holy Spirit in your behavior and the selfish passions and desires killed. The barren fig tree selfishly took of the nutrients of the soil, but it gave nothing in return. It soaked up the good of the land over its land, but it produced no fruit. Three years went on, and the landowner was at the end of his patience. He planned to make kindling wood out of this barren tree. For more than three years, some of you here today have heard the gospel of God's kingdom preached from this pulpit. Bible topics covering the whole will of God have been laid before you again and again. You've soaked it in. You've given the appearance of spiritual life. You look like a Christian. You talk like a Christian. But there's no fruit. Nothing produced of a godly nature in your life you're all leaves and branches and all talk and no do and Jesus is saying like the Galileans in the temple who were cut down unexpectedly by Pilate the governor for their willful sin there is coming a day when the landowner the king himself God Almighty is going to cut you down at a time you least expected unless you repent today and begin to produce fruit for God. And there's an urgency in Jesus' story about the fig tree. The Galileans never knew what hit them until it was too late. The city folk had no idea that going to the pool of Siloam for water would be the day of their death as the tower fell on them. The Galileans were in the act of worshiping God in a church service and destruction hit them. The city folk were going about their everyday pursuits of life when destruction struck them. This is you this morning and this is me. Every one of us live life under the grace of God who gives life and takes it away at will. You don't have tomorrow to get right with God. 
You don't. You only have today. That you even have today is due to God's mercy. That's the point of the vineyard keeper's appeal to the landowner to wait one more year before deciding the fate of the barren fig tree. In the meantime, the vineyard keeper will do his best to cultivate and fertilize the tree so that it will produce the desired fruit. Every day, the Lord delays his coming. Every day, he gives you breath. He is extending to you a little more time, a little more grace, a little more mercy. But if in the end there's no repentance, if there's no change in your thinking about your life of sin, no renouncing of your lifestyle, no coming to God through Christ for forgiveness and cleansing, you too also will perish. Verse 3, verse 5. And the blame will be yours. Because you've been fed good nutrients, you're planted in the place you need to be to be taught the things of God. But the responsibility does not end with the teacher. It ends with you. With you. There is a destiny that awaits us all. And that destiny is to stand before the God of the universe. And give an account of what we did with Jesus Christ. And the gospel Jesus preached. We will not be able to plead ignorance. We will not be able to say that we never heard. For God knows well that there were plenty of years to produce fruit, years to respond aright to his call to faith in Jesus. There were years for repentance to come. Had the Galileans been warned of the danger which awaited them in the temple, you can be sure that they would not have been there the day when Pilate's soldiers pounced upon them. Had the city folk known that some of the stones in the Tower of Siloam had lost their structural integrity and were about to collapse, they would have steered clear of fetching water from the pool that day. As the saying goes, to be forewarned is to be forearmed. Well, God in the gospel graciously warns you to flee from the wrath to come. He tells you, he tells me up front that he's coming back in but one more year of grace. And if he doesn't find godly fruit in our lives, we're going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. How clear can it be? In actuality, I do not know where Americans stand in reference to the coming of Christ. He may be walking on his way even now through the vineyard to inspect the fig tree that he planted. Will he find the fruit that he loves? The fruit he has a right to expect from those who are his creatures. Will he find you watching? Will he find you ready? This is the gospel Jesus preached. 
He that has an ear, let him hear what Christ says to the churches. Let's pray. Our Lord, we get so entangled with the things of life, making a living, supporting a family, seeking our pleasures, that we are sometimes tone deaf to the reality that Christ is walking among us and the day is coming for his return at which time those that are his sheep will be gathered into his fold those that are goats will be cast out into outer darkness which Jesus says there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth which will it be for us today Lord I don't know only you know the heart but the gospel has come to us and it tells us turn our hearts upon Christ trust him forsake sin repent do the deeds that God has given us to do in the holy scriptures grant us a hatred for sin Help us turn away from it. To the praise and glory of Jesus, we give you thanks. Amen. Our closing hymn is from the Trinity Hymnal number 520. Wonderful, marvelous hymn that explains how we're made right in the sight of God. Can you find number 500? Stand with me.
thank you for the shed blood of Christ for his substitute work on the cross substituting himself for us if we will believe and trust in him not for every last person in the world but for those who have faith in Jesus that his work was for me I pray, Lord, that you will help us to see that. And if we will not have Jesus' work for us, then our own work will have to stand before the tribunal of God. Oh, what a scary thing that will be. We think we're so righteous. We're not. We're sinners by birth. We're sinners by practice. We'll be sinners till we die. And if we stand before the tribunal of God full of sin, where does that end us? It ends us in hell's torment. For the wages of sin is death. But if we will have Christ, if we will have a substitute stand in for us, if we will trust him and his death, to be for us and the death we should have had, then forgiveness awaits and cleansing awaits and newness of life. And the wonder of it all, Lord, is that we don't have to wait till we die to experience it. We can experience the new life in Christ right here and now, in this life, in this world, as you begin to change our way of thinking our way of living, our way of doing, our motivations, our loves, our affections, all of this begins to change the moment that Christ becomes our Savior. And that is just joyous. So I pray that you will work through the Holy Spirit of God to change hearts today for your glory and our good. Amen. Remember tonight, meeting at 6 o'clock. Pastor, one more item of business. Okay. You get to a certain age, you don't want to count anymore. <laughs> You're just thankful to make it through another year. Thank you, guys and gals.